The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Coming up, Chelsea bring out the fireworks against Man United, Brighton's explosive nine-goal thriller and Barca rocket past Madrid in El Clasico. It's Lindsay Hooper here and with me today, it's two journalists at the top of their game. Rich Laverty, yes, I'm talking about you. You're one of them. Hello. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you very much. And the Athletic's Nancy Frostick as well. You're the other one, Nancy. Hi, yes. (laughs) Good to have you both. Now, usually I would talk potentially about bonfires and fireworks because of the intro, let's face it, it was top of the agenda. However, I've just caught up on I'm a Celebrity. Have both of you seen it yet and seen how Jill Scott has been faring? Do you know what? I'm going to really let you down because I haven't seen it yet. <gasps> I, I would have had money on the fact that you'd have watched it. So that's a big shock to me. I went and I, I put um, a bet on before it started. I thought she's going to she's going to be queen of the jungle. We know Jill. She's going to win everyone over. Even on the first episode she does. I don't want to give anything away, Rich, or spoil your enjoyment of it. But she she's just brilliant from the off. Have you seen it without giving anything away, Nancy? I have watched, yeah, a good a good chunk of, uh, yeah, the first one. And I'll be honest, I have never watched I'm a Celebrity before. So the power of Jill Scott, I have actually watched an episode. Yeah, there's so many people the same, actually. I mean, I, I won't say I've never watched it before. I'd, I've had my fixes of it over the years, but I've not watched it for, for quite a while. And yeah, her being in it does mean that there's quite a lot of the women's football community, I think, that are getting in and getting involved to support her. Before we get on to the main makeup of this show, which, believe it or not, isn't just Jill Scott in I'm a Celebrity, a, a big thank you for all of the love that you've been showing to our Beth Mead exclusive episode last week. We don't often toot our own horns on this show, but we were six in the Spotify Top Sports podcast charts. So we are going to ask you, if you don't mind, to keep subscribing, following, spreading the word. If you do listen in nearly every week, maybe every week, but you don't yet follow us, it really does make a difference. So if you could do that, we would be really appreciative. And what an interview that was. We're really grateful to uh, to Beth for her time and for being so open and honest in that. Later, we also have a snippet from The Athletic's new Away From Home documentary series with all areas access to Shakhtar Donetsk from war-torn Ukraine. So do stay tuned for that one. Adam Crafton takes us on a journey through what's been going on in a very turbulent war-torn country. It's just super interesting listen. But for now, back to the WSL as Man United took on Chelsea. Here goes Kerr again. Earps thought about coming, but thought better of it. Three in support here for Chelsea. One of them's James. A terrific Chelsea goal. And in a flash, it is Chelsea's game. 
This was it. It was the one Nancy and Rich that I think we've all been waiting for. Two of the top teams going against each other. We've had quite a few weeks, so quite a few fixtures have gone by, but we've not really had that top tussle yet between two of the juggernauts. Manchester United announced themselves just by their form this season as one of those, and they wanted to prove that they belong among the Giants, but Chelsea were too strong on the night. Uh, the Reds got one goal through Alessio Russo, who was back in the side, but the Blues won 3-1 in front of a record crowd at Lee Sports Village. That was thanks to goals from Sam Kerr. Lauren James and Erin Cuthbert. In terms of where they are now, the evolution, Mark Skinner has told us that this is the squad that he's picked and assembled. They're where they want to be. But he's also said to us previously how they fare against the teams in the top three is key to whether they can actually break in to Champions League football at some point. Where do you think they are right now? Are they way off or are they close? I don't think they're way off. I think there were signs of progress last night compared to, you know, the same game last season when they lost 6-1 and, and were obviously completely second best. I think the game generally went as kind of maybe you would have expected. I mean, Man United were definitely in it. You know, for an hour it was very close. There wasn't a lot in it really. There weren't many chances. Both teams were quite solid. And, and probably for an hour it, it showed where Man United are now. Um, in terms of they're getting closer. But then the last half an hour probably just showed where they still need to be because, I mean, they weren't outclassed, I wouldn't say. I mean, they, they've made an error, you know, for the first goal. It's a poor ball out from the back and, and you can't do that against Chelsea, you know, when you've got people like Sam Kerr in the team. And, you know, they responded well to going 2-0 down, whereas maybe, as we saw last season, they would have collapsed. They got back in it and... They had one or two chances and then obviously at the end, you know, they're a little bit stretched and, and they're a bit unfortunate with the deflection to make it 3-1. But, you know, Chelsea were favourites. Chelsea are favourites for 95% of the games in this league. And and you saw with the depth of player they could bring off the bench. That's where they're still ahead of teams like Man United who are still playing catch-up. They've got more depth. They've got better depth, but still not on the level of Chelsea. So... I think it showed exactly where United are. I think you're right. I think they are closer, but they've still got, you know, a few more steps to go before they can really, you know, they will get the odd result here and there. But in terms of regularly beating the top sides, I think they're still a bit off that. Nancy, I was there for Sky for this one for about four weeks in a row now on this Sunday evening game. It has been raining. Uh, I'm running out of wet weather clothes, to be quite honest with you, for these games. Afterwards, I did hang around to speak to Mark Skinner about his thoughts on it. And let's try and separate what was the difference here between the two sides. So he spoke to me about elite level mentality, wanting to see speed of thought, concentration. And I think it's worth giving you the context of what the question was going into to those quotes, which was about experience. Did experience tell in the end? Was was that the difference between Chelsea and, and this Manchester United team? Yeah, I think I broadly agree with what he said because, you know, their start to the season speaks for itself. So, you know, clearly that progress has been made, as Richard said. And the first half, it, there wasn't a whole lot in it by the looks of things. So I think in terms of the little errors they've made, maybe some of them look like it could have been a communication thing. Obviously, you know, that, that pass out from the back for the first goal, whether Millie Turner needs a shout, you know, to play it simple or something like that. You know, those mistakes happen. And obviously a pretty similar mistake um, from Aaron Cuthbert resulted in Alessia Russo's goal. But then the other two, 
so the the third goal, I think, and you might have been able to hear this better if you were in the ground, but I think on the on the feed when I watched it, you can hear Mary Earp shout, uh, leave it. Either to, I'm not sure if it was Mary Leticia, Leticia or um, uh, Thoris Dottier who was in front of her who cleared it, but I thought she shouted, leave it. And then obviously the defender hasn't left it. So um, maybe Mary Earp will have been cross with that one. But, well, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the thing that I thought about about it at that point was that there'd been a, a roll of the dice by Mark Skinner. He decided, you know, I'm putting on two attackers. We're going to go for this. That Russo got that goal back at 2-1. I think he would have been classed as as a bit of a coward had he not done it because with the with the personnel he's got he's got to go for it but of course when when you do do that you leave the gaps at the back and that they probably weren't as well organized as they had been up until that point and it didn't surprise me the Aaron Cuthbert goal then then caught them out or that a goal would catch them out I felt there was a goal and it was going to come one way or the other from them throwing everything at it or from Chelsea managing to to capitalise, really, for, from them being out of position, which I think they were. One of the other things that happened, though, in this, you know, we're making out like it was uh, potentially a closer game than the 3-1 scoreline suggested. But actually, in the first half, Rich, Guru Wrighton was challenged by Maya Letizia in the box. And then the replay showed that there was certain contact and I think when you first saw it in real time and the ref waved it away I think we all just thought oh okay but when you saw the replay I know the panel in the studio Kelly Smith Karen Carney both changed their minds and thought that it was a penalty and one of the reasons it wasn't given being there you just looked around I think apart from Magda Eriksson no one in that Chelsea side on the pitch appealed for the penalty and this isn't the first time that I've noticed this so in the post-match interview I spoke to Paul Green and I said do you think players in the women's game appeal for penalties enough and he he pretty much said no this is the third one he felt that they should have had and they didn't get and that he feels he needs to speak to the players and that they may need to start appealing for things more, which I think is a really interesting talking point. And I'll get you both involved with this. But Rich, first of all, you cover the championship as well. Is this commonplace up and down in women's football that they just don't appeal enough for penalties? From my experience in the championship, probably not. We probably appeal for two or three stonewall penalties a game that don't get given. And you, pro- you maybe you get to a point of you just can't be bothered appealing for them anymore. I don't know. But... I don't know. It's, it was like it was a penalty. I thought it was a penalty anyway. I, I don't know whether, like you say, obviously people tended to change their mind on replay. So maybe there was just a, a feeling that it wasn't a penalty live. Maybe her teammates didn't feel it was a penalty live. I, I think a lot of people watching maybe thought that that Maya had slipped or even that Guru had slipped because obviously it was a very wet pitch and you know with the benefit of a replay you can see there's clear contact and, and there isn't really a slip and that it probably should have been a penalty. So. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether it's a case of being too nice or things like that. I've certainly seen a lot of penalties heavily appealed for in women's football, especially in the championship. But yeah, it was a weird one. I mean, fortunately, in the end, it didn't affect the game. But yeah, for me, watching it it live, I wasn't sure. I wanted to see a replay of it. But when I saw a replay, I was pretty sure it was a penalty. Paul did say that this wasn't the first one, Nancy. And you've got a great perspective to bring into this because your brother is a ref in the women's game and the men's game. So has that direct comparison. I know you've already asked what he thinks. And 
it, it is one where I don't think it's just this occasion where Guru didn't claim for it. I think it has happened. And I think it's happened for Chelsea before. I think it's happened in WSL before. And know from what Rich is saying that there the clearly are those players that do appeal. But there is there is a contingent that aren't. Yeah, and it's quite an interesting difference, you know, speaking to him and um, it does a decent level in the, in the women's game. And essentially, I think it's something they, they actually get taught when they go for courses with the FA that, um, you know, men and women play football differently. We know this and it's great. But basically, you know, there are differences. Quite often, I think they find that when women are playing football, if if a decision goes against them, they want to know why that's happened. And my brother says, you know, if you give them the reason, quite often those objections or the dissent kind of dies down straight away because you've provided that reasoning. Whereas in the men's game, and maybe this speaks to some of the sort of influencing a penalty decision, kind of the conversations with the referee or any dissent and that sort of stuff is a lot more throughout the game. And it might be to try and influence future decisions rather than asking for a reason as to why something has happened. So it's quite interesting kind of to think of it in that way as, you know, some people want to know why and some people want to try and change what might happen in the future. So yeah, maybe I thought it was a penalty as well when you, when you see the replay, but yeah, it's weird that none of them, none of the Chelsea players were really that up in arms about it. So maybe they were confident they were going to go on and do it regardless. Well, Paul may just have a word. And when I'm talking about Paul Green, of course, alongside Denise Reddy, they have been standing in for Emma Hayes. They've done such a brilliant job. They were joking, I think, in the studio. Who needs Emma Hayes? <laughs> they, they've won every game without her being there while she is recovering from a hysterectomy. Although we have seen on social media that she is chomping at the bit to get back. And now this international break gives her that opportunity. So we are hoping to see her return against Spurs at Stamford Bridge. So it's going to be a pretty special uh, fixture for her to come back to. Uh, Chelsea weren't the only team with a stand-in manager that had a successful weekend. Georgia Fox drives forward. Finds a good ball in there. Fox has supported the run too. Drops her way. It's Georgia Fox. 5-2 Brighton. Two minutes after coming on as a substitute. The Chelsea Loney has surely put this game out of sight of West Ham. Yeah, rewind to last weekend and it was eight goals, not a single one for Brighton. They lost by that huge margin to Spurs. Then fast forward this weekend, nine goals, but the Seagulls came away with a 5-4 away win over West Ham. You can't write it, can you, Rich? You can't write the, the WSL at the minute. No, I mean, you don't see many teams concede eight and get beat eight nil and then obviously go and score five away from home uh, the week after it was uh, yeah I mean that, that is the WSL it can it can really flip from one side to the other I mean I don't know whether to say it's a it's a completely new manager bounce obviously with Amy Merrick's taking over but it was something that was much needed I'm sure they won't be thrilled that they made it probably a lot tougher than it should have been at the end but you know West Ham have actually had a you know a decent start to the season so to go there and and score five and, and get the win. You know, I think there'll be some top teams that don't go to West Ham and score five. So it's uh, it's a good start. And obviously, yeah, I mean, off the back of last week and, and the 8 0 and, you know, a pretty disastrous result all round, it was just what, what they needed. And, and they've got good players, Brighton. So, you know, it shouldn't be a huge shock. I mean, you know, they've had one player called up to the England squad, obviously, and, and another one that that was there before going to Man United in the summer. So, you know, they got good players. And, um, yeah, it was it was much needed and, and might obviously be the catalyst for, for kicking off their season now. 
We should remind everyone who missed the news last week about Hope Powell uh, resigning from Brighton and Hove Albion. She'd been at the club since 2017. So, Nancy, for Amy Merricks to come in as interim manager, get that sort of result straight away. We talk about new manager bounce. Do you think that was part of it? Do you think that there was something that changed? Were they given more freedom to what they'd had under Hope the previous week? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess... You know, it's not just a case of new manager bounce, but also so much of Brighton's identity has been, um, you know, under Hope's leadership, basically. And, you know, it's a long a long time as manager and you kind of, I guess you see it maybe more in the men's game where, you know, you can have those long spells and then a team kind of doesn't know what to do when, <laughs> when managers step aside. But look, I thought it was such an entertaining game at the point where, you, you know, you can't remember all of the goals for for good reasons, because both sides are scoring freely. It was great. Um, Dan Carter had such a such a good game. It was so nice to see her just absolutely dominating. And I think she was involved in pretty much everything. Uh, obviously, two goals and I think one assist, but she was just involved in the build-up for a lot of, of their goals. And um, Georgia Fox as well, who's a player that I find really exciting to watch. She's on loan from Chelsea and, and she got a goal towards, I think it was in the second half, um, towards the end as well. So... There was so much to be excited about that, yeah, maybe it's a case of the players thinking, okay, you know, we need to show what we're capable of or maybe just proving a point that they've got that potential within them or, or whatever. But um, yeah, it was really exciting to to watch and also, yeah, just good to see some quite creative players within their squad just going for it, which was nice. It was such a nervy finish. So Brighton at one point, 5-2 up and West Ham managed to peg two more goals back in the last five minutes of normal time. They could not find that equaliser. I think if there had been three, four more minutes, they might have done. You could tell that it was starting to crumble. Uh, In the other games, Arsenal made it 14 consecutive WSL wins as they beat Leicester 4-0 at the King Power. That was Willie Kirk's first game in charge of the Foxes after Lydia Bedford left last week. It feels like there's been so much change in one week in women's football. Uh, So Willie Kirk, now the new manager there, Do you think it'll be a smoother transition, Nancy, because he was already at the club in this director of football role? Will it make it easier him coming in to the managerial role? Yeah, I think so as well, because if if you've not got that period of uncertainty in terms of, you know, having an interim or kind of knowing if someone's going to come in with a, a completely new set of ideas, then, you know, having someone who's already in the building and, and who obviously um, has the experience that Willie has will, you know, hopefully benefit them. It's a really, really tough game for him to start off on. And, you know, I think he said that in, in his post-match as well. Like, it's probably the worst, apart from maybe Chelsea, like you say, is the top two. You don't you don't want to be playing them in your first game as um, as manager. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know kind of how involved he'll have been in terms of director of football, sort of, getting to know the players and those sorts of things. But I imagine he'll have learned quite a lot just from, you know, this short period and that sort of game against Arsenal. So even, you know, having him there already will, will have been beneficial, definitely. Mm. And and you did think that the talent amongst this Arsenal team would just shine in this fixture. It didn't matter really what he did in this one. I think he'll be judged on what he does next, not from that match. Um, worth uh, also noting that Miedemar has this granted leave of absence at Arsenal at the moment, so was not included. Not anything that we need to dwell on for this show, but um, I'm sure we'll talk more when she comes back into the starting eleven. Um, elsewhere, Manchester City beat Reading 3-0 thanks to two own goals from Emma McCandy, who I can't get used to calling McCandy. 
Handy, I want to call her Emma Mitchell. When I saw that flash up, I thought, oh no, it's the unwanted hat trick that anybody wants. But thankfully, I think thankfully, it was only two own goals for her and a Bunny Shaw header. Shaw's seventh goal in six league games. Uh, Villa beat Liverpool 1-0 with a Rachel Daly penalty. Uh, Spurs game against Everton was called off because of a waterlogged pitch at Brisbane Road. Um, So we can add that to the ones that need to be rescheduled in. I mean, should this even be happening, Rich, waterlogged pitches? I I can't believe that we're still talking about it as a professional league. Uh, I can't believe we had a game postponed for a waterlogged pitch yesterday that was an an all-weather pitch. So... um... defies what it what it says on the tin <laughs> and there were puddles everywhere so quite what an all-weather pitch it was I'm not really sure but yeah obviously it was a long trip to Crystal Palace and uh to find that there was puddles all over the pitch but um yeah it, it shouldn't be it's still a product of where we're at you know and and whilst the women's game is growing rapidly and you know it, it still will we do obviously still play In stadiums, you know, of lower league clubs or non-league clubs. And, you know, I think it's still the dream one day, isn't it, to see every single, you know, professional women's team have their own stadium or to be able to share, you know, the the main stadiums with the men. I think we're a long way from that, to be honest. Obviously, Manchester City have it and to an extent Everton have it now um, and Chelsea have it. But, yeah, I think think whilst you're playing at these stadiums, unfortunately, you're still going to see it. I mean, it was pretty torrential. Um, yesterday it causes scheduling issues like you say because we've got a lot still to rearrange from the opening weekend including Tottenham so Tottenham have got two home games to to rearrange which is not ideal fortunately most of them got on there was more on than I thought there was going to be when I saw how bad it was um, down south with obviously West Ham playing at home London City playing at home uh, I know Lewis, Lewis Bristol City was off in the end as well so I mean, look, sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. Even in the men's game, you see games postponed for, for waterlogged pitches as high up as, as the championship. And, you know, that's a product of, of an English winter season. But it's, yeah, it's not ideal. But I don't think we're going to find a sort of suitable way around it for, for some time just yet. Okay, well, I actually had another pitch-related story flagged to me, courtesy of Jackie Oatley, who pointed me in the direction of this one. Um, a fifth-tier match between Luton Town Ladies and Colney Heath Ladies was called off just two minutes before kickoff in front of 800 fans at Kenilworth Road. So all the fans have already got there. I mean, we are talking literally two minutes before they're set to kick off. So why did that happen? Well, the Luton Town Ladies' official Twitter account said the weather was bad and they wanted to protect the pitch for the men's training on Monday. So it's not even protecting the pitch for a men's competitive match. It's for men's training. I mean, I don't even know where to begin with this. I think eye roll emoji comes to mind. Colney Heath ladies told this very podcast that the groundsmen and staff from Luton Town said it was called off because of the men's trainings. Uh, Luton Town ladies have since deleted any mention of men's training from the tweets. We asked Luton ladies for comment. They haven't replied. Luton Town men have said that they were disappointed at the unverified responses from Luton Town ladies and will be holding discussions with the with the club officials before commenting further and disassociating themselves with the women's team refers to them as an independently run team under Luton Town's naming license who were invited to use our stadium yesterday. I mean, I don't really know where to begin with unpicking all of this, but it, it just sounds horrid, doesn't it, Nancy, really? It's um, 
it's what we've spent so long trying to move away from all the good that we've had in the summer of the Euros and everything. And we've still got stories like this. Yeah, really disappointing. And also sort of surprising, you know, at, at this point to hear a, a team sort of disassociating with the, the women's team almost. It feels like more and more we're seeing women's teams being brought under the umbrella of, of their men's clubs or, you know, being fully incorporated and all those things. And it's kind of surprising to to hear that kind of... Uh, yeah, separation from uh, from Luton. But in that case, then, you know, surely they're hiring it and they deserve more than two minutes notice to to sort it out. So um, it, it is really disappointing. And I imagine, you know, people will still want answers to this. It's not just going to go away because they've put one statement out. Mm. So it's a big deal to people to play as well. Like the difference it makes as a player, even just at Sunday league level, when, when I get to play on you know, our men's team pitch is special. You get your friends and family down, all stuff like that. And for it to then be taken away at the last minute seems yeah, pretty harsh. And it is such a shame when you consider that they'd managed to get 800 fans there. 800 fans were, were then turned away just before kickoff. This is a fifth tier match. So they, they've actually done really, really well. I mean, some WSL matches a couple of seasons ago were getting 800 fans. So, so there's potential there. You know, why wouldn't you just want to pile on and grow that even further? But whilst I've got you both, I know that you have championship allegiances. Uh, Nancy, for you, you follow Southampton. Rich, we know that you you work and you also live in Sheffield, love Sheffield. I mean, they kind of are these days. Like, yeah. I think, you know, yeah. Lindsay, I grew up as a Man United fan. But um, yeah, I mean, working for for Sheffield United for the last you know, four years now into my fifth season, obviously across the women and the academy. But like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i always looking at the first team results now and obviously want them to do well because I suppose selfishly, the better they do, the better it is for everyone at the club. Um, but yeah, like it's a it's a great club. It's a great city. I, I know Nancy covered Chef Wednesday for a bit as well. She, she'll know what the city is like. And it's really, it's all about football. You know, it's got two big clubs in it and, you know, there's always that bit of rivalry over who's going to be the, the dominant one. And hopefully that comes into the women's game as well um, in the future. But yeah, they I've kind of adopted them as my team. As a, <laughs> I think when you work somewhere day in, day out over such a, a length of time, you can't not really. Have you noticed anything different this season? Do you feel that the championship is changing? Has has the standard improved compared to, to previous seasons? It changes every year. It gets better every year because more teams are going full-time and more players are dropping down as well because they're seeing they can get full-time football, they can get a decent wage, but they can actually play as well rather than just sit on the bench in the WSL. And I think that's something when you speak to agents, whether that's in my role as a journalist or my role at Chef, that you hear about. You know, a lot more clients are open to going to the championship. And, and I think that's an extent as well that a lot of, top teams in the WSL are buying big foreign players as well and players are getting pushed down the pecking order. So that's making the championship increasingly more competitive. And I think you're seeing that again this year, different teams are beating each other week in, week out. I just wish as as ever there was a few more promotion spots. I think for the whole league, it, it would be great and it would expand the WSL. We're still not doing it. I don't really know why now after a few years, but it is what it is because all it takes is one team to sort of run away with it, which kind of Bristol are threatening to do a little bit. And it, it sort of makes everything else, while still competitive, mm. sort of meaningless because whether you come between second or 11th, it, you know, once you're at the end of the season, it, it's only really about pride. There's no real other incentive 
um, you know, if you're not coming first or you're not coming last, you're not really doing anything else. When the league gets taken over and um, the FA relinquish their control over it, I, I can honestly see that being one of the first things that changes. I think we'll have more promotion spots. They'll they'll want more of that jeopardy. Um, so that could be introduced. We do know that Southampton have done that. They've been there. They got the promotion T-shirt, Nancy. Are they faring okay? Because sometimes we worry about that with promoted teams, that they come up and they're going to go straight back down again. But But that doesn't seem to be the case, does it? No, I think obviously the way that Southampton have done it is fairly interesting given the drama that surrounded Manchester United going into the WSL. And obviously, I don't know if that would have been possible, but kind of, you know, they're going for the promotion way into into the WSL, hopefully. At first, I was worried because I think it was the opening game of the season. They lost 2-0 to Charlton. And I thought, OK, you know, they, they went great guns last season in the National League, but maybe this is, the, you know, time to come back down to earth. But since then, they've been brilliant. Third in the table, hopefully keeping keeping pressure on Bristol City. But they just seem to have found their feet really, really quickly, which is great. Um, and I know that, you know, there's big ambition um, to really invest in the women's and girls' um, side of the club. And, you know, hopefully seal a WSL spot but it's it's similar actually you know having won the playoff game against Wolves out of the National League uh, in May it's slightly crazy as well that there's only one and it's one position there to get promoted and it's a playoff game and you know can you imagine you I know that playoffs exist obviously everywhere but to come down to one game between Mm. two leagues to then get that one spot in in the championship is um is a bit mad as well. I'm not just speaking as a Wolves fan here, Nancy, but it does feel very cruel, probably more cruel than, than an ordinary year. But yes, it does feel cruel. Hi, I'm Adam Crafton, and I'm the host of the Athletics new documentary series, Away From Home. We've been following Ukrainian football team Shakhtar Donetsk through the Champions League group stage. They've had to play their home games in Poland following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The first bomb, I never forget. In this series, we're going to take you inside Shakhtar. Travelling with them across Europe as they set out on their Champions League odyssey. It's not only about football now, it's about to show that we are fighting. I'll be speaking to those in Ukraine itself, hearing stories about how the war has affected them. My wife's father, he died. They killed him here. Subscribe now to Away From Home to follow the whole story. This weekend in Spain, it was El Clasico. Bea Redondo is back with us to give us an update from Spain. Bea, it's been a few weeks now. How was the Clasico? How did it go? Well, it was very intense. It was a 4-0 result for Barcelona, and I don't think any of us were expecting that because, you know, coming into the game, it felt like it was the closest one today. But then it turned out (laughs) that there was this big mentality division and and kind of difference between the two teams. But it was a very, very intense and exciting game. Uh, Probably not for Real Madrid fans, though. I suppose, really, when you look at it, Real Madrid, a fairly new outfit, aren't they? And Barcelona have been playing in Champions League for many years. So is it the rivalry we expect it to be yet? Or has this got a way to go? I think from a fan's perspective, it is. Um, I think, you know, you can't deny that Barcelona and Real Madrid, they're the two big teams, like internationally, uh, when it comes to Spanish football. And so the rivalry is there when it comes to fans. On the pitch, though, even though, you know, Real Madrid was coming from getting very good results um, so far, you know, in in the Women's Champions League and, and in the league, 
I think there's just that that difference in mentality. You know, that's the the piece I think that Barcelona have cracked that Real Madrid still need to work on. And yeah, they're fairly young. I think they need to grow into that. Um, but that's the piece that's missing. You know, go into this men- into this game with that mentality of you know I'm a big team. I'm going to face this other big team and I'm going to win it. We have three names that immediately, as soon as this uh, fixture comes up, that we look out for because of WSL, because of our allegiances to them in the UK. Uh, Caroline Weir, uh, Kira Walsh and Lucy Bronze. So performance ratings from you for each of these? So I think Caroline Weir didn't perform as uh, we were expecting from her. She was a bit quiet uh, throughout the game. I think she was kind of projected to be one of the big stars of the game, the one that would kind of give uh, maybe Real Madrid the edge. And I think it was Kira Walsh and, and, you know, kind of all the defensive side from Barcelona that actually shut her down. And so it was a very quiet game from her. Um, I think she had one shot, like clear shot on, on goal or something, not even in goal, I think. So very quiet game from her. Uh, Kira Walsh, you know, she's still getting into the Barcelona style. I think she did well, you know, kind of uh, shutting uh, Caroline Weir down and um, initiating kind of possession. Still a way to go for her. I think she will kind of get into that Barcelona cell a little bit more. Uh, Lucy Brands, though, she was outstanding. She was, <laughs> for me, probably with Rolfo, one of the, the two players of the match. Atenea and Olga Carmona, who were two of the most exciting players for Real Madrid, played against her and had to face the, her in many battles. Atenea during the first half and Olga Carmona during the second one. And Lucy Bronze just came on top every single time. She was extraordinary in defense and going up in attack. I've also got uh, the upcoming friendlies that I wanted to talk to you about, Bea, because Argentina and Japan are the friendlies on Spain's list. And of course, the national team situation out there has been so intriguing. Um, 15 players have still not made themselves available for selection because of manager Jorge Bilder. So what can you tell us as the latest there? And, And what do you see for the national team going forwards if this isn't resolved? Well, um, I mean, I think the situation is getting a little ugly because we haven't had many updates recently. We had obviously Jorge Bilda coming out with a new list uh, for the upcoming camp. None of those 15 players or, um, you know, Irene Paredes or uh, Jenny Hermosa were on that list. Uh, during the media call, he made it very clear that these players had made themselves, uh, you know, not available for him for selection. But we haven't heard anything from the players yet. So really, it doesn't look like it's going anywhere. There were rumors, there was a little bit of conversation about Foot Pro, which is a, a trade union that the Spanish uh, women's football players created to kind of uh, fight their causes from a more kind of female perspective. They were rumored to be negotiating with the Federation, but whereas the Federation has been very quick to leak certain aspects of this issue, there have been no leaks about you know whether that's been progressing. And when um, Jorge Bilda was asked during the media call, he said, you know, it wasn't for him to to have those conversations with FootPro. So it actually looks a little bit ugly. I don't think we're going to get a resolution anytime soon uh, unless one of them kind of backtracks. And I don't see that happening right now. Mm-hmm. So it also it was also very interesting yesterday, I think, during El Clásico, that you could see a little bit of, I, I would say that even part of the mentality from the Barcelona players, the Spanish Barcelona players was coming from, you know, saying, hey, Look at us, we're here. We're able to score four goals on the Real Madrid players, which are 
actually, you know, kind of coming in with in big numbers to the new kind of roster for the uh, Spanish women's national team. So here we are, we're very good, pick us, but, you know, doesn't seem to have a kind of resolution anytime soon. Well, we'll let that fester for a bit longer, Bea, because we know things happen. It just all happens all of a sudden, doesn't it? But we will check in with you again and get an update uh, in the new, near future. Uh, Bea Redondo, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you very much. This is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Coming up this week, it's time for international friendlies. England play Japan on Friday and Norway the following Tuesday. And both of these games are in Spain, so we'll stick there. I wish I was in Spain right now. Japan won the World Cup in 2011, runners-up in 2015. They only got to the round of 16 in 2019 in France. Uh, Got to the quarterfinals of the Tokyo Olympics, though. So do we know really just how good this this current Japan side are, Rich? They've got Man City's Yui Hasegawa, West Ham's Hanukkah Hayashi, Shimizu, who I thought was brilliant in the game that I saw with West Ham recently, and Iwabuchi as well, of course, at Arsenal. So there's a few more names now that fans of WSL will recognise um, going into these games, but the whole of the squad, what does that look like? Yeah, I, I think with teams like Japan that... It, it sort of doesn't always matter who the personnel are. They're very true to their style. You know what you're going to get. They're very, very technical. And like you say, we know that from seeing players like Yui Hasegawa here, like you said, Mana Iwabuchi, obviously he's not played too much at Arsenal, but you know is a, a really exceptional player. And, and they've always been that way. They develop players that way and, and they bring through players in that kind of system. And, and that's why I was kind of enjoy playing them because it's usually quite a good game to watch um, especially the way England are at the minute you know sort of the swashbuckling attacking football because Japan will try and play as well you know they, they don't really I don't think the term part of the bus exists in Japan. Um, <laughs> I've so never I, seen them part the bus <laughs> they will try and play football like they'll try and play around England um, yeah. which I, I think probably part of that is why they've selected it and it's quite helpful as well with obviously playing China at the World Cup you know it, that would be a similar game. Japan have they got a better midfield than England? I mean, there's so many areas that I look at with, with the Japan team compared to um, England at the moment and think they are inferior. But the the midfield, I suppose Kira Walsh, the only exception, I wonder if they, they do have an edge. I think Japan, they've always been very good at, at producing players like that, players that can control games, quick passing and... And they've always been good at it. You know, I remember the game in in 2019 and and I was a bit worried about it at that time because England were not quite on the level that they are now. Um, And obviously they'd beaten us a few years before in in 2015. And they have that ability, a little bit like Spain, where they can pass you to death and pass you to death. And and they've never, the thing with Japan, they've never quite had the end product to go with it. Um, But they'll be a tough test and it'll be really interesting to see because obviously we got so used recently, we've just been playing sort of European teams up until the US game. Mm-hmm. Um, so play an, I, I don't think we've played off the top of my head. I don't think we've played an Asian team. Um, but I, I think as well, quite a bit of it is now being done on purpose, knowing the World Cup draw. Obviously, like you say, we'll have to face an Asian team. So we've got Japan coming up. We've obviously got South Korea coming over uh, to the Arnold Clark Cup next year. So I think quite a bit of it has been done deliberately um, to prepare for, for obviously playing uh, a team like China at the World Cup. 
Um, the other thing that was announced in the last week was UEFA Nations League matches are going to be introduced for the women's game as well as the men's now. So this is instead of friendlies. Nancy, it does mean more competitive matches. It's been really well received on the men's side of the game. So do you think this is a good move? Yeah, I think so. Once everyone's got their head around the logistics, because it took me like six months of the Men's Nation League to understand how on earth it, how on earth it all works. But um, yeah, if it's a similar format, I think it will definitely help. You know, we've had so many conversations recently about those matchups where one national team is thumping another national team 10, 15 nil or something. and Sometimes 20, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you yeah. think, you know, how is this good for anyone? So if it helps sort of remove a bit of that then I think it'd definitely be a positive because yeah you know we've talked about that enough it's not fair on on either team and it's probably not helping anyone but yeah if it if it brings more competitive matches it's good it's another thing maybe something sort of more established and meaningful to play towards and to win than you know some of the more I suppose sort of cult tournaments in women's football like the Arnold Clark Cup or She Believes or you know the Algarve Cup or all those ones over the years where England have sort of been involved in in sort of mini tournament. Well I'm glad you brought that up because oh the irony of us talking about more competitive matches in the Nations League with the introduction of this and then you look at the Arnold Clark Cup and what they've announced in terms of the lineup this year and I'm sorry but We've always considered this to be competitive teams taking on other competitive teams, but it is not the case this time. We've got England, South Korea, Belgium and Italy. Just for comparison purposes, last year it was Spain, Germany and Canada with England. I'm not I'm not underselling this, am I, Rich? It's not going to be as competitive, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's not as sort of all glamorous looking on, on paper as, as last year, obviously, but uh, I, I think there's a few factors. I think obviously going into a World Cup, you know, teams are sort of doing their own thing. I, I think I'm not sure what happened. I think Canada were in it until quite late, and I think something changed. Um, whether that's their own plans, I heard something potentially about them going elsewhere in Europe, or maybe they're going to stick back and, and go back into she believes and stay local and have a local camp that doesn't involve travel much. I don't know, and we'll see what Spain and Germany do. But you know, like I said, I think potentially there was some deliberate things done as well in terms of picking teams that maybe were going to be similar challenges to to what they'd face um, at the World Cup, obviously in terms of an Asian team and, and maybe a team that might come, you know, like Belgium that we saw were very defensively solid in the European Championships that, that might try and part the bus, that might try and really frustrate England rather than have a go because I think that's what England are, are going to see now a lot. So, yeah, it... it it's maybe not as exciting on paper. It's not as competitive on paper. I think it's still in their good games. I mean, Italy, Italy kind of really disappointed at the Euros. They were one of my dark horses, and they've got some really good players. You know, Belgium did well, got out of the group, and and South Korea, like you said, like we said before, really technical team. Looking forward to seeing Ji So Young come back to England. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But there'll be some there'll be some good matchups. I think the other important thing on the Nations League as well is. Everyone will focus on like those bigger games, like where you see England play. You know, now you see them play Germany or France or Spain or whoever, rather than the Luxembourgs or the Latvias. But it's huge for the smaller teams as well, and that's what we've seen in the men's game. And and I wrote an article about a year ago, speaking to some of the managers and players from, you know, the lower nations about what it is like getting beat twenty nil and and what you can take away from those games. And and whilst they did take away from it, and they didn't actually want anything really changing. It's going to be big for them, you know, for, for Luxembourg to be able to play Latvia or to play, 
you know, any of the other sort of smaller teams, the teams coming into it now, Kosovo and, and whatnot, because they're actually going to get some wins. And, you know, that that's mm. really important for them to develop. So I'm kind of fully behind uh, the Nations League thing at sort of the top end and the bottom end. But, yeah, Arnold Clark, it, it, it'll be interesting to see. But I, I still think maybe part of it has been done kind of through necessity, but also partially, I think, deliberately as well. The Nations League, I believe that's going to be introduced from 2023. And the Arnold Clark Cup that I mentioned with that lineup of England, South Korea, Belgium and Italy is a tournament in February. And that is all we have time for, for this week's Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Thank you very much, Rich and Nancy, for joining us and giving us your thoughts on lots of different issues from this week. It feels like the women's game just keeps on producing stories. Have you ever been as busy as a journalist, either of you? No. (laughs) (laughs) Because you were telling me earlier about something you were working on, actually, Nancy, which sounded interesting. Yeah, the the silent game thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being involved in uh, the FA sort of initiative for um, spectators and coaches and everyone to keep silent at the weekend. So even sort of grassroots level stuff is now on my radar for work, which is is interesting. But um, yeah, it was was sort of different and, and good in a way just to have focus on the game, not too much from the sidelines. So, yeah, always interesting. And you managed to keep juggling, Rich, uh, your job at Sheffield, but also doing a few few articles here and there as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I quite like being busy, to be honest. I think I've I think I've found a new appreciation for being busy since COVID when we were just sat around doing <laughs> yeah. nothing. So that's the good thing. You know, we've just gone through it all there, though, haven't we? Like, we've just come off the back of a Euros and... And we sort of joked after the Euros, like I think even with you, Hoops, when I saw you after the game about, you know, what do we do now? Like we've won, we've won a European <laughs> championship. Like, yeah, we can all we can all go home and retire, but then you come out of it and you've got a new season. And, and now we're like, we're going to win the World Cup. That's yeah, what we're going to do next. Got, yeah. You know, you've got big Champions League games coming up. You know, big league games at big stadiums. Arnold Clark. You know, the 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 finalisma against Brazil, and then the World Cup before you know it. So. Like, that's the good thing now, you know, even when you've had something where you think, oh my God, like, how do we top that? You've got tons of other big things coming along as well. So it's always busy. That's the thing with football. It's just (laughs) one big circle year after year. And that is why we are here each and every week. Uh, Do give us a follow, social media at The Athletic FC from now on. They've changed the handle, The Athletic FC and at Offside Rule Pod. We always love to get your thoughts and engagement and we get so much through. I think that's one of the things that you have to love so much about the women's football audience is that you all get in touch. We love it. Uh, To round off as well, we'll leave you with this snippet from The Athletic's brand new documentary series, Away From Home, which I mentioned earlier. The Athletic were given an all areas access to Shakhtar Donetsk during their Champions League campaign, all while their normal lives have been turned completely upside down by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It is a remarkable series. And if you like what you hear, you can listen to the first three episodes right now by searching for Away From Home, wherever you get your podcasts. Take a listen and see what you think. Can, can can you hear me okay? Yes, yes, yeah. of course. You can ask ask question. I try to answer. Sure. So, so I suppose to, just to begin, can you explain the past couple of days how how you are, and also if your family is okay? First of all, yes. Uh, uh, in in the morning of twenty uh, fourth of of the February, we woke walked up after the uh, uh, sounds of bombs. 
and uh, went to basement. This is the captain of Ukrainian football club Shakhtar Donetsk. His name is Taras Stepanenko, and he's one of the most famous footballers in his country. He was born before the collapse of the Soviet Union. He played over 70 times for Ukraine, and he's been with his club since 2010. I called him as war broke out to learn what was happening firsthand. Multiple attacks on cities right across uh, the country. Uh, the foreign minister, uh, Dmitry Kuleba, uh, has, has just tweeted that uh, the country is under full-scale invasion uh, by Russia. I have a wife and three sons. One uh, seven years, one eight and one four. Okay. What do you tell them? scared so much and we, we started to read news but my my son they i think they uh, they don't uh, understand clearly what happened now i think they're they, they scared too stepanenko's life changed like so many other ukrainians did when russia invaded the country in early 2022 but six months on unlike most men his age he's fortunate enough to do his normal job again, to play football and to play in the Champions League, where the best teams from across the continent face off to be crowned kings of Europe. For Ukraine, football is more than a sport now. It's a unifier. It's a statement to the world that they are strong. And Shakhtar Donetsk is the embodiment of that sentiment. We are showing all the world that, uh, that uh, we are still alive. Nothing cannot kill us. We are in the war for 2014. It will be difficult to play, but we must play. Unfortunately, we are thinking just about Ukraine now. And uh, if this fucking bastard from Russia think that we will stop to play because of that, we will not stop to play. We'll play and we will win. For The Athletic, I'm Adam Crafton. Over the course of this series, I'll be tracking Shakhtar's unique football journey as they navigate their way through football's toughest contest, all whilst there's a brutal war raging on their doorstep, forcing them out of their own country. You didn't sleep, you, you cannot sleep. Three days, three days without sleep. I'm proud that I'm part of this team, of this club, and today we can be proud because this victory is for Ukrainian people, for Ukrainian citizens. It's not only about football now, it's about to show that, uh, to show that we are fighting, that we are still alive. <laughs> this is Away From Home, episode one, We Believe in Miracles. The Athletic. <laughs>